The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Institute, Addictions, Grace for the Journey. Good afternoon. Now some people perspire, I sweat. So I have a towel that my hotel provided for me, so it will make it back. Don't panic, Hampton Inn. It is on the way back. It'll just be slightly used. Uh, wow, what a blessing to be here. I want to thank Craig Marshall, Jim Neuheiser, and Marsha for all the work uh, that goes into this. These conferences are hard to host and manage all the details. So praise the Lord for people like them who are willing to do that. And uh, for Ed Welch, what a blessing he is, you know. Not only do I have to speak to you after lunch, which is the the one slot you really don't want to get as a conference speaker, Um, but I have to go after Ed Welch, who's a renaissance man. He writes on every topic so well. All his books have been very helpful to me, so I encourage you uh, to uh, glean what you can from his work and his ministry. I serve currently at, uh, well, I, I wear a lot of hats. I'm a pastor at Faith Church in Lafayette, Indiana, and my primary responsibility is Vision of Hope. It's a women's residential ministry, ages 14 and over. So we just had a lady graduate who, was, who had been plagued by her problem for four decades. Four decades. It was powerful when she shared that at her graduation, that this problem had plagued her for 40 years. So I know biblical counseling works. I get to see it every day in what we do. So we help girls 14 and over, as long as they can participate in the program and the activities and that at any age is fine. I mean, 14 is a minimum. And uh, we help them in four areas, self-harm, did a workshop on that a little bit ago, um, eating disorders, addictions of all types, and unplanned pregnancy because we have a, an adoption ministry attached to what we do. So we help our girls that want to place their babies for adoption. They don't have to do that, but they can do that with a family that we've screened and we meet with them, counsel them, help them uh, in that whole process. And uh, it's just a beautiful thing, a beautiful picture of the gospel. Uh, we, we have residents, but we also have interns. I want to make sure I mention that because our intern program, we have 12 interns who live in the home. We have capability for 26 residents. So if you're doing the math and we have a full house, that's 38. We have staff member about eight more. So that's 46. And then there's one guy there. That's, yeah, that's where you laugh. And I'm going to have to do a better job with my joke telling. I can tell that after lunch. <coughs> Your bodies are going against me. Uh, But we have an intern program. So if you know a young lady, it could be out of high school, preferred out of college, but uh, some of our younger interns have done a great job and they live there. We provide room and board and opportunities for them to do ministry, to sit in counseling, to learn. Uh, It's just really great. And so we take in new interns in July. And in January, we might be full this July. I think we are. But um, if, if you know someone, let me know. We could maybe work them in or at least maybe in January. So uh, the internship program is something I want to mention. And you can 
go online and find information about that. Uh, I am married. My wife and children are back in Indiana. We have four children. My parents actually live with us now, so you can pray for us in that way. Um, we, they're probably watching right now. Sorry, Mom and Dad. Um, <laughs> they're, uh, they're really a blessing, and, and we're all there crammed into one little house, so it's, it's a lot of opportunities for us to love each other and to show and to exercise forgive, forgiveness principles, you know, things you've been learning. Uh, the, the problem of addiction is one I've been dealing with in residential programs for 26 years. And the problem, you know, it morphs, it changes its face a little bit, but the heart is still the same. And the, and the great thing about this particular workshop, Biblical Insights into Addiction, is that you're going to get to see and, ex- and experience the wisdom of God and how he speaks to the heart of this issue. And I love doing this workshop. I do it all over the place. And wherever I teach it, people are um, often excited about how they are better equipped to then handle hard cases. Because what I want, I'm originally from, I was born in Kentucky, moved to Alabama when I was about 10 years old. So I really hail from Alabama. And in Alabama, we have a phrase that we say. And it's called all y'all. Have you ever heard or used that phrase? There's some Alabama people right here I know who have. They've used it today several times. But all of y'all means all of y'all. So my goal <laughs> is for all of y'all to walk out of here after this session and say, I can work with somebody who struggles with addiction. Because what I believe the church has been doing with this problem for many years is punting on first down. Now, if you're familiar with the game of football, and I am, there's a guy named Nick Saban who's a pretty important person in Alabama. But if Nick Saban were to get the ball against Auburn, because that's their rival, right? I mean, really, on the radio, they talk about Alabama-Auburn football every single day. It doesn't matter if the World Series is going on, the Super Bowl... The lead story is who's Auburn recruiting, who's Alabama recruiting, you know, every day. And the ladies in the grocery line, when you're in the checkout line, they're talking Alabama football. The 60, 70, 80, 90-year-old ladies are talking about that. So it's a big deal in Alabama. But if Nick Saban, I guarantee you, if Nick Saban got the football against Auburn and every time said, we're going to punt on first down, because you punt on fourth down, but you don't punt on first down. But if he said, we're going to punt the football on first down every time, he'd be fired by halftime or they'd get him out of there. And he's an important guy. And I think the local church is punting on first down with the issue of addiction. We're we're giving up way too early, way too soon. And God speaks to the heart of this. So I'm excited about this and hope you will be too. Let's get right into it. Our goals here to learn biblical insights for those enslaved to an addiction. I love the passage in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, which says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. In other words, you're probably easily deceived on this, so it's a command. Don't allow yourself to be deceived. Don't believe the lies. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, right? Me, you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that's our message. This is not some disease that you have to say, I'm an alcoholic every day the rest of your life. Because you have a new identity in Christ, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. But you know that that's part of your past. Everyone in here who's born again used to be one of these labels. And we practiced such things. Uh, but God has washed us, sanctified us, justified us, all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to do his work, to be transformed into his likeness and image, and then to become uh, someone that glorifies God by reaching out and sharing the hopeful message of the gospel to others. So that's our first goal. Our second goal, discover how you can effectively minister to an addict. And I've already mentioned that, but the passage is Galatians 6, 1 through 3. Brothers, written to Christians, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, I put that in there because I really want to emphasize that just for a moment. Gentleness. We have to be about the business sometimes of confronting people who have experienced great suffering, often at the hands of other people that wasn't their fault. Where they're responsible is in their response to that. So we have to be gentle. We have to have a spirit of gentleness. And I deal with high-handed rebels. I deal with biblical fools. I deal with emotional girls. And I'm just talking about my staff. <laughs> Boy, I'm offending everybody that, that I, you know, I got to face these people when I go back to, to Indiana. Very foolish decision here early on. Um, so I've got to deal with these kinds of things, and you do too. When you're counseling people who struggle with addiction, they make emotional decisions. And um, I have to remember this spirit of gentleness because it's real easy to be impatient right and what is the first thing in the love chapter 1 Corinthians 13 that love mentions love is patient so if I'm being impatient hurry up and get this fixed or hurry up and quit being a rebel or hurry up and then I'm not being loving I'm being unloving and so I would encourage you to be gentle to talk about the grace of God that you've experienced and remember that you know, anything short of hell is, is a, a blessing, a bonus for us because that's what we deserve. I sometimes ask classes or audiences, you know, what do you deserve? And people say nothing, but that's wrong. That's a wrong answer because we deserve something and that something is hell. And so anything less than hell is a good day, right? Amen? And we got to learn to think that way, and we got to learn to minister that way. 
And the verse continues, or the passage continues, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So right there is a warning. Guard our hearts, guard our Guard ourselves when we're ministering to others. That's why I love team ministry. I wrote a book on team counseling because I believe in counseling in teams of two. I just think that's so wise, such a good model. And in Birmingham, Alabama, we, we started on a Friday. We had two sessions and we had three counselors. And in a year and a half, we had 56 counselors and we had 83 sessions a week. So we went from two sessions to 83, three counselors to 56 in just a year and a half because the people love the team model. A truth teller with a grace giver. And I always say, you know, God pairs them up in marriage, right? <laughs> and, and if you're sitting there, you're probably thinking, yeah, my spouse, truth teller, right? But I'm the grace giver. And then your spouse, if we ask your spouse, they're probably saying the same thing. Grace giver and the, sp the other one's the truth teller, you know. Because um, we all think we're grace givers. <clears throat> and our spouses uh, think we're truth tellers. But I would encourage you to counsel, and especially with addiction, counsel in a team of two. These ladies that we work with, A Vision of Hope, they're smarter than, than every one of our staff uh, members put together. I mean, you know, we could put all our brains. These girls are sharp. I mean, they're in there because they've been survivors. They've had to figure out ways to, to get out of situations, to hide in closets, to, I mean, I mean, these are actual stories, actual facts. I mean, that, that's what our girls have had to deal with. So they know how to survive. They're smart, they're people savvy, and they could run circles around any of us. So we need two people helping counsel to catch and confront and, and encourage the sufferers, the, the weak. We have to encourage them, but we need two in every session. So I just would encourage you with that. But you keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And then verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now let's talk about addiction counseling. I just want to be in one, stay in one passage here in just a minute. Before I do that, I just have to give a little bit of uh, background and foundation. I'll, I'll be quick with this because hopefully many of, you, many of you already know this. But we don't deal with addiction as biblical counselors as a disease. That's a theory popularized in the 1930s, and now people say, it used to be in the 80s, I would hear people say it's like a disease. Today, people say it is a disease. Chris Christie said it not too long ago, and, uh, and government leaders are just all buying into the disease concept, the disease model of ministry. Uh, so I would encourage you that biblical counselors think of it as a sin heart a sinful heart problem, an idolatry problem. It's a choice to put something other than the one true God in God's place. And they do that, we all do that, for uh, selfish reasons. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's a command not to get out of control with wine, out of control, and, and it implies that there's a choice there. So I don't have this disease, I'm making choices, I'm making choices to uh, sin or not. And then that word debauchery, 
I don't know about you, but I haven't used that word in a sentence in the last, anybody used debauchery in a sentence in the last week? I don't see any hands. Um, usually there's one hand or two of uh, college students, but um, <laughs> now they're mad at me. Uh, <laughs> sorry, kids. The, um, <laughs> debauchery is not a word we use much, uh, but it means utter ruin. Now, when I think about addiction and being utterly ruined, certainly your, your soul is never utterly ruined. You can always lead someone to Christ, whether they're in a wheelchair or they have uh, other uh, impairments. Um, you can lead them to Christ. But the, the, and I'm thinking about this when I think about utterly ruined. I had a guy who shot heroin into his leg, didn't, he missed. It got infected and gangrene and ended up, he had to amputate. They had to amputate part of his leg. Well, that's an utter, that's a debauched life. That's an utterly ruined consequence. He'll never get his foot back. But his soul is still there. That's what I mean by that. So I can still help this guy because spiritually he can live forever in a renewed body. But in this life, he's got a debauched life. He'll never get that foot back. The person who goes to prison for a DUI, they're not going to get you know, out of that sentence. So when we're counseling, we can't promise the world and say, well, God's going to get you out of all your consequences and all these situations. We've got to make sure that we say, you know, you may not ever get out of prison. You may not ever get your foot back. But there's bigger things than that. So that's what this verse is warning us all about this debauched life. But then the, the beautiful thing is be filled with the Holy Spirit. And a vision of hope, I don't want just to graduate girls. I, I want them to be clean and sober, but there's a bigger goal. I want them to walk with Jesus. I want them to enjoy Christ and, and love him and find more in life than just, you know, I'm clean and sober and I'm not drinking anymore. I mean, that's not, not motivating them at all. What I have to do is help them to be motivated by love for Christ and by faith in Christ. So there's a bigger goal. Now again, with addiction, we talk about it as disordered worship. Disordered worship, self-seeking rather than serving Christ. So they're looking for ways to please themselves rather than trying to serve and please Christ and other people. And they're focusing energy and time on something other than God for selfish gain. And that involves sacrifice or the act of giving up something you want to keep, especially in order to do something else to help yourself, usually. And the church needs people who have been idolaters. We need them in the church because they know how to sacrifice. They know how to lay down their life for heroin. They're not afraid. And we want those people to be converted just like the Apostle Paul was converted, right? He was still zealous. He just quit killing Christians because now he was on the good guy's side. He wore the white hat in the cowboy movie, right? The old Western hat. Uh, he, would, he was a good guy. He had the right target. But he had the same zeal for Christ that he had as a pagan. 
And so we want to do the same thing. We want to see these ladies at Vision of Hope use their God-given gifts and personalities now for good rather than to lie and manipulate and steal and trick and whatever they used to do. We want to see them use their abundant gifts for the kingdom. So a biblical redefinition just of addiction for you real quickly of sin in the heart is the persistent habitual thoughts, words, and actions. So the world would say compulsive. But these are habits. You learn habits in your thoughts, in your words, and in your actions. So you learn how to think in a habitual way. You learn how to speak in a habitual way. And you learn how to act in a habitual way. And all that's associated for them in this definition with excessive pleasure seeking, which are known by them to be harmful and physically enslaving, sinful and willful choices to disobey God, whether they acknowledge it or not. So that's all the background I want to do. Now I want to get into a great uh, chapter in Proverbs chapter 23. If you'll turn there, 23 verses 29 through 35. I'm going to read the whole thing first. Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. And then we're going to go through, and this is where you're going to see biblical insights into addiction that will help you minister to others. All right, verse 29. Proverbs starts in an unusual way with a series of six questions. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Then it's answered in verse 30. Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. So in verse 29, the first question And really all six of these questions provide for you an agenda. So let's say you're down at the local coffee shop. I'm not going to say Starbucks because I'm, you know, I don't drink coffee. But uh, I have plenty of other addictions that are, you know, mine. But you're at the local coffee shop and somebody walks in and they've been up all night using and you have an opportunity to sit down and minister the gospel to them. They start talking to you. What are you going to do? Well, guess what? God's already given us an agenda. He's given you six questions right here that reveal some of the heart of the person you're talking to. So you don't have to figure that out. You don't even have to ask them a lot of questions because you're going to know these six things about them as they're sitting there in the coffee shop with you sipping on your favorite beverage, right? What do you guys get at the coffee shop? I don't want to know. That's all right. 
And the first thing you know about them, who has woe? Who has woe? And that's recklessness. That's really what uh, is involved with woe. It's impending doom. You know that this person is not afraid to go on the dark web, the dark net. Have you heard of that? There's an internet browser, Tor is what it's called. The onion is kind of the O symbol. But the Tor web, web browser is one that you can go on and your IP address can't be traced because it, it scrambles, jumps around different computers. So they can't, so if you're selling drugs, they can't trace it through the dark web, through the dark net. If you're buying drugs, they can't trace it. So we're seeing more and more drug use, more and more pills being shipped, um, just even just drugs in the mail. The IP address isn't known on these, um, on tour and other places. Then you've got Reddit, which is a, a website that has lots of drug information, even recipes on how to, to make drugs, how to cook them up, how to, how to build, a, you know, um, crystal meth uh, apparatus and all that. So it's easy to become a drug dealer or a drug user today. And then you've got drugs like fentanyl being mixed with opiates. You know, the drugs that kids and, and people are using today are not what people used in the 60s. I mean, even uh, marijuana, a joint, used to be 14 to 18% of it was the, the THC, the drug in the, in the marijuana. <clears throat> today, if you dab, it's 85 to 95% concentrated with THC. I mean, people are using this stuff, and it's different than the drugs that not you, but your friends used, <laughs> right? <laughs> Boy, I'm making friends everywhere I go. Uh, <laughs> then fentanyl's being mixed with opiates. That's what Michael Jackson and Prince died uh, using, those, uh, dr th that mixture. And there's even a new one, carfentanil, which is a tranquilizer, not for horses, not for donkeys, but for elephants. Elephant tranquilizer, they're mixing it in there. In fact, in Cincinnati, over a three-day period, three days, there were 174 people who overdosed, who had to be brought back. Eight of them died. Uh, but in a three-day period, because there was this carfentanil stuff in there, it's 10,000 times more potent than morphine. 10,000 times. And they're not even just using one Narcan. They're having to, to blast them with several. I mean, Narcan's powerful, and if somebody overdoses, you can usually use one and get them out of it, but now they're having to use several of those. And when somebody comes out of that overdose, they are mad. You can pray for the paramedics and the people that serve these folks that overdose, because when you come out of that drunken stupor of, of heroin, uh, you are so mad, and, and just, why did you bring me out? Well, because you were... You know, fixing to die, as we say in Alabama, right? Fixing to die. Um, you're fixing to die. And they don't care. They're mad and uh, will be violent and, and all that. So these are people who have woe in their lives. They're reckless and they just don't care. They're willing to die. 
Now think about that for a minute in a good way. What if they love Jesus? What if they're willing to go to other countries and other places to serve the Lord? Willing to lay down their lives in the church house for other people. We have a lady that helps us a vision of hope. We give her the toughest cases because she's just willing to lay down her life for these women. She's willing to do anything for them and to help them. And so we reserve the really hard ones for her. I hope she's not watching right now, but she, um, she's great. And, and I mean, you know, <clears throat> she just lays down her life and that's really what they need. That's what is required. You know, some of our girls can meet with a mentor once a week and do counseling once a week and, and they're in the program, so they're doing that every day. But some of these girls have such traumatic sexual abuse and experiences in their past that they need somebody who's willing to lay down their lives for them. And they don't want to live anymore. So this person sitting down in the coffee house with you, you know right away if they've been up using and they're a drug addict, quote unquote, or, or you know, an alcohol drug, or alcohol is a drug, it's just in liquid form. So I'm not picking on you if you drink alcohol, but it's a drug, it's in liquid form, just like cough syrup is a drug in liquid form, you know, et cetera, et cetera, making more friends. Um, but uh, so I think you can apply the principles in this proverb, which talks about alcohol, drunkenness, to the larger problem of uh, drug addiction and idolatry. But they're reckless, so that's what you know. Second thing you know, who has sorrow? Deep sadness, hurt, bitterness, anger, leading to depression. We, and, and Ed talked about shame. I mean, here it is. They're deeply hurt, sad, bitter. This is the person you know. God's giving you insight. I'm talking to a reckless person who's got shame in their lives and deep sorrow. And then the third question, who has strife? Well, I mean, it's pretty obvious, but they have relational problems primarily because they serve an idol and they want everybody in their family and in their circle to serve that same idol. And the idol's designed to, to benefit them if people love them, they say no. They don't enable them. They say no. And so those people, they just kind of get rid of those no-sayers in their lives. And they want people who are going to agree with them and say yes. So they're going to have relational problems with the people that really love them the most. They want others to bow down to their idol and really to bow down to them. And what does relational problems mean? What does strife mean? It actually means they're going to be lonely. You're dealing with lonely people. Because the people who really care about them have separated. The ones that don't really care about them and are using them are willing to go along with all their drug shenanigans and their purchases and all that. So the people that they would call friends... That's what's tough about counseling them, right? You're sitting there, and they're telling you about their friends, and you know their friends aren't really their friends. Their friends are working for the devil, for the, for the wrong team. If you're an Alabama fan, they're on Auburn, you know? <clears throat> I think we, Auburn or Alabama? Oh, he's wearing an Auburn shirt. Man, I got to go the other way now. We're staying in the same hotel. That'd be nice to you. Somebody might see you at the pool. 
Uh, it's hard to get back on track after that. Uh, who has strife? So what do we know? Three things. Woe, recklessness, right? Willing to do anything. Sorrow, deep hurt, shame, strife, relational problems. And then we see the fourth question in the agenda here. Who has complaining? They're ungrateful. You know, I always say we could give some of our girls at Vision of Hope a million dollars, and they'd say, oh, great, i got to pay taxes on this now. I mean, you know, <laughs> that, that's just what we deal with. Um, and we do thankful. So every day after lunch, our girls have to write down 30 things that they're thankful about, 30 things every day after lunch. You know, and if I'm walking through the room, I yell out, put down, make sure you put Pastor Shaw on one of those, you know, one of those 30... <laughs> Um, they don't, but you know, they should, <laughs> but <laughs> they don't appreciate me. But the, uh, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because when you hear complaining and I'll hear complaining just about the food, I, I shared this last night, but, uh, one of the girls, we, we do end of shift reports. So I'm getting them right now on my phone. I probably have five or six of them. And they let you know about each girl's significant things they said or did during that shift that the interns worked. And so it's good if you're counseling, you want to get that information, that data, because you're getting, you know, real data. They're really how they are around interns and not that way around me, you understand. So I need to know how they really act. <clears throat> and they come in and I'm reading the end of shifts. And I read one once where the girls that said she complained about the food and she complained about this and that. And so I just used it as a teachable moment to email everybody out on our staff team and the interns. And I just said, she's on the road to relapse. It won't be long. And I think the next day she ended up leaving the program. And one of the interns came to me a week later. She said, Pastor Shaw, when you sent that out, I thought he's overreacting. That's just, he's just crazy, but I see it now. And that's what you want to listen for when you're counseling. Are they complaining? And it can be complaining about a little thing, their spouse, their job, whatever they're complaining about. Again, if they're not thankful that they're not going to hell, they're missing it. They're, they're off track in their thought life. And you have to lovingly, gently confront them and get them back on track or else they could go down a path that just really uh, would be <coughs> dreadful for them. So you know that within Starbucks, you know you're dealing probably with a complainer. Then the fifth question, who has wounds without cause? You know, I think this ties into the shame as well. It's a physical thing that the Bible's talking about here. Because when you're drunk, hungover, you wake up the next day, you have bruises, you have a black eye, you're like, what happened? I was out of it, I don't know. And people tell you what happened. So there's that part, this physical part, but there's also, I think, a spiritual component here. They're hurting deeply, and they don't even know why they hurt anymore. I mean, it's really sad. They, they don't even know. They've been, uh, they've made so many wrong choices. We had a young lady who, it was doing good for a while, went back to crack, got raped by about six or eight men, and just, you know, just hurting, 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 all this stuff that's, that's happened to them. And they want to forget about it. 
So this wounds without cause is, is really interesting to me because there's things that when I'm sitting down and counseling and working with someone, it's quite often that I hear from, from the ladies or sometimes couples I'm working with now, I've never told anybody this, but, and then they tell you. They tell you something horrific. It's hard to sleep at night when you, when you think about it. And that's what you want to ask. You want to dig and get to those things that they've never told anybody. And sometimes they really want you to fish for it. You know, they're not just going to come out and tell you. They want you to ask those things. So they throw little clues and little hints and little, you know, play a game. And sometimes counseling is kind of like that with an addict. But they're, they're not going to be real transparent with you until they know they can trust you. So I hope that you've heard someone say, I've never told anybody this ever before, but boom. And then they tell you something that um, it can change your life. It changes your perspective. Now, girls can make things up, too. We have that. We have girls that don't want to be, they're not satisfied being the, you know, whatever their life, whatever they thought that was. So they make up elaborate stories and we've heard some dandies. So, you know, they, they like to lie. So don't believe everything they say. But they will share with you some really deep wounds, some, some deep things. Or sometimes they just kind of blacked it all out. I'm careful because I know this is videoed. But we've had girls who have, have been a vision of hope. And within the first few weeks... They're afraid to go to sleep at night with all the lights out. They want a little nightlight on because the abuse and dreams and things like that are starting to plague them because they can't go back to self-harm. We watch them like hawks. They can't binge and purge because we watch them like hawks. They can't do drugs and alcohol because we watch them like hawks. So they, they've, they've lost all their coping mechanisms that are negative, and they've got nowhere to go. And they still don't know Christ. They don't trust God yet. You know, God isn't someone that they trust. So we've got to teach them to run to Jesus. But before that happens, they want nightlights. They want things in place that can help them not to be so afraid. And fear is a big deal, especially for women. Uh, it's just such a big deal, the people pleasing and the fear of man and all that kind of stuff. So uh, Ed has a great book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, I recommend you get. But that's going to be an issue you deal with as well. And then the sixth question, who has strife? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just did that. Man, who has redness of eyes? Boy, it helps to look at the right slide on your notes. Who has redness of eyes? Yeah, I have this memory. I've only... I've only taught this a couple million times, you know. Um, I don't know why I use notes, but I uh, probably shouldn't. There. Uh, who has redness of eyes? Now, this is a physical thing. Because, you know, you're drunk. Next day, your eyes are bloodshot or your pupils are dilated or whatever's going, whatever drug you're using, there's a redness of eyes. But here's the bigger deal. I think there's a spiritual implication here to also, just like in the last question, the spiritual implication is redness of eyes symbolizes a lack of hope. It's hopelessness. So redness of eyes, yeah, physical, but also there's a deep, hopeless spirit. Uh, um, 
that plagues them. So you've got somebody who's reckless and somebody who's hopeless. You talk about a recipe for disaster, just those two ingredients alone are, are in their hearts are enough to bring great concern. And you talk about the shame and the sorrow. You talk about they're lonely because of their relational strife problems. And they're complainers, so their view of things is very negative, kind of like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh. If you're familiar with Winnie the Pooh, you know Eeyore, the character there, the donkey, he just complains about everything. And they see the world in that way. And you put all this together, and you've got somebody sitting there in the coffee shop that is really hurting, has huge need. And I tell you, I, I've done this 26 years, but I sit there in counseling and I just, I pray, Lord, I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed. You've got to do this. Your spirit has got to speak into their hearts, you know, through me. Help me to use your word or, or, or uh, help me to be submissive. Just, just lead me and guide me. That's why it's tough to say, well, do this and then this and then this and then it all works out. I mean, it's just not. But we know six things on our agenda that we would want to deal with. So when I sit down with people and I'm counseling them with addiction, I know six things right here, right off the bat that I can counsel their hearts in. And these six things probably keep you busy, right? For a long time, for many, many months. But then there's verse 30. Verse 30, the addictive behaviors in verse 30, those who long, who tarry long over wine. They put a lot of time searching for their drug. But bigger than that, they spend a lot of time thinking about it, anticipating it. A lot of planning goes into it. These are sometimes excellent planners. So you, you, you want to get them saved so they can help plan your conferences, right? I mean, you know, I need you to get saved pretty quick here because I need you to work for me. <clears throat> that kind of thing. Uh, those who go to try mixed wine is the next part of this verse. And those who are seeking the hard stuff. This is your heroin with fentanyl and and uh, they're really trying not just to have a little glass of wine with dinner, but they want to get blitzed. They want to live in Blitzville. They want to be oblivious to everything around them. That's what they want. So that's the person we're talking about here. Notice it doesn't say drunkard. So this could be an occasional person. Uh, but it is someone that at times they spend a lot of time looking for the wine, and they go to try the hard stuff. Then the Bible goes on to give us three warnings about temptation, about tempting their hearts. And it says, don't look at wine when it's red. So that's a command. Don't look at it when it's red. Don't think about it when it is this beautiful red enticing color, and certainly don't even look at it. So you got to help them to not walk down the wine and beer aisle right at the grocery store. you got to help them to not even look, especially in the beginning. Their eyes are so important. Give them practical exercises to bounce their eyes away from this uh, thing that has tempted their heart so greatly called alcohol. 
or drugs. So changing people, places, and things. And then when it sparkles in the cup, well, this is the part where it says, Mark, Mark, come over here. It's sparkling. You know, it's red, but now it's sparkling in the cup, and it really is starting to pull me in. You know, when you read Lot in Genesis uh, 13, you know, he cast his eyes, he looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Then you read, he, he pitches his tent near Sodom and Gomorrah. Then the next thing you know, he's living in Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's inching closer. He looks, pitches his tent. Then he moves into Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 1, it says that he's in the gate. Well, sitting in the gate, what that means is he's become the mayor. He's become a councilman. He's become a leader in that area, which we know, we all know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It didn't end well for them. And he moved, inched closer. Well, this sparkling in the cup, don't look at it when it's red, and certainly don't look at it when it's sparkling in the cup, when it's calling your name. And then the third part, when it goes down smoothly. To me, this is the only beer commercial in the Bible. You know, it's, it reads like a beer commercial. If you've ever seen those, you know, it goes down smoothly. I mean, it's just got the, I could just see her a Barry White, deep voice on a commercial, just, you know, goes down smoothly. But it's honest. It's, it's honest. The Bible doesn't hold anything back from us. And so red sparkling in the cup and goes down smoothly. How it, how it feels and how it's going to make you feel. Because the Bible's not saying it doesn't feel good. And there isn't some kind of physical payoff. But what it's going to say here, the dire consequences in the next verse, but before we get there, now you're ready at the coffee shop to give the person you're sitting with homework. And they're going to love a special project from you, right? They're going to love this. <sighs> That's why we put them in vision hope they can't leave when we give them homework, right? Sparkle list. List the ways your pleasure of choice sparkles to you. What do you like about it? What does it give you? What are you after with this? That, that's what we want to know. We really want to get to the heart of this. What is it that they're seeking? And I'll talk about that some in the plenary tonight, about three key heart issues that I think are so important for every addiction counselor to work with and um, hope you'll be here for that. But then the dire consequences. There's a friendly foe, a snake. The dire consequences, verse 32. In the end, it bites like a serpent, stings like an adder. So don't fall in love when it's red, sparkles in the cup, goes down smoothly. You've got to think about the truth of in the end, it's going to bite me like a serpent. Sting like an adder. Anybody been stung by an adder in here? A few of you. No, no one. Okay, good. So you probably wouldn't be here, or, or you'd you'd look a little different, maybe with a you know, <laughs> with an amputation or two. But um, it's not a good thing, and it can lead to death. But you know what? There are people who tried to commit suicide, who were unsuccessful, and now they're living. In, in a way that's really worse than death in, in some ways. And they're having to deal with that. You know, if it's not your time to go, you could have some dire consequences as a result of addiction. 
And so another homework list. You have the sparkle list. But now you have a snake list. List the ways your pleasure of choice has bitten you. How has it harmed you? What consequences have come? How have you almost died? What's the future outcome likely to be? And you got to get to these things with your counselees. You got to help them to see the reality here of, of what Satan offers versus what God offers by grace. So then twisted perceptions in verse 33. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart utter perverse things. It's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, right? So in one sense, counseling is easy. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, you can counsel that person. But it's a lot harder when they're deceptive. Or when their perceptions are twisted. I think even though they may be off of drugs and alcohol for a while, they still have twisted perceptions of the world. They certainly have that of God. And one of the joys of disciple making is helping them to know the one true God, to see his amazing grace and his mercy in their lives and uh, to teach them. And when I say teach, maybe it's living it out. You know, one of the things I love to do with the girls at Vision of Hope is we, uh, we play wiffle ball. Yeah, wiffle ball. Did you hear me say wiffle ball? Yeah. Has anybody played wiffle ball? Okay, good. God bless you. May your tribe increase. Um, <laughs> wiffle ball is great. And it's an equalizer kind of game. So we play wiffle ball. It's really fun. I pitch and, you know, and the girls hit and they scream the way they're running around the bases. And it's just a lot of fun. Um, and it's living out life together. So there's a lot of opportunities in wiffle ball for injuries. Our girls are pretty good at getting injured. Um, we do incident reports all the time. Uh, and then, but opportunities to it, conflict resolution, you know, with me usually, because I'm competitive. And where um, <laughs> I have to humble myself, will you forgive me uh, for throwing that ball so hard at your... At your legs, you know. I'm not going to hit them in the head. But, um, but we're competitive and we're, we're living life. And you need to do that sometimes in the local church with counselees, with people. Live life. Now, it's not just the sterile lab environment. But we, we live life together in the local church in the body. And I understand not, I mean, not every counselee, but certainly there are times where it's appropriate to have meals and, and share events and do things and, and share your lives together. That's what I love about Vision of Hope being tied to the local church. You know, we're not just a 501c3, nothing wrong with those, but we're not, they're coming to our program and then they got to go find a church. They're coming to our program, which is the church, and then many of them end up staying because they don't have places to go. And so, uh, or homes that are safe, so they stay with us and we love that. But all of that helps them to begin to see life in, in, a, in a good way. I mean, and I said this last night, I really like when my girls can go to lunch with a godly couple. And I like our phase three program where they live off campus, but they often live with a church family. And they're, and they're seeing a man love his wife in the right way. And, and they're seeing her love uh, her husband in a godly way. And they're getting to see that because many of them have never tasted or seen anything close to that. 
So I love the local church as part of this uh, help to help their twisted perceptions of life, to change their outlook, to change how they view God. Because a lot of our girls come in, and I, I've said this in two sessions, so those of you who've heard me, I apologize. But, <clears throat> you know, if I told you right now, take your wallet, take your purse with your most treasured possessions, go down to Costco, find the most hideous looking person you can find, and give them your purse or wallet, would you do it? Well, the answer is no, right? You wouldn't do that command. And you'd be wise not to because you don't know this person, especially if you've deemed them in your own you know, perception to be uh, hideous. Well, that's how our girls come into Vision of Hope. They see God that way. So they're not going to trust him with their lives or their purse. But the joy is getting to help them to see and know the one true God. And then crying out to God and saying, God, I need you to show them who you are. I need you to do that. I can't just convince them. I can't change anybody's heart. But Lord, you can. Would you work in her heart? Would you help her to see you as you truly are? Then she won't see God as a hideous person. She'll see him in all his beauty. And she'll want to trust him not only with her purse, but with her life. And that's what I would encourage you to do in biblical counseling. Then there's instability in every area of life for them. It's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You'll be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast, the most unstable place of the boat. You're lying down trying to find rest. So another thing you know about this person is they're not at rest. They're not at rest spiritually with Christ, but even physically, they're not rested. <clears throat> and they have physical, emotional, and spiritual instability. Am I talking to Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde? That's always the question. Then the motive in this last part of the chapter, Proverbs 23, the motive is to choose to continue to sin despite the consequences. And when you have hopelessness, recklessness, loneliness, twisted perceptions, no rest, and what are you living for? You're just living to get through. You know, you're trying to get through, but here's the motive that is so interesting. They struck me, you will say. I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. And so you see someone that is bragging almost about, you can't hurt me. You, know, you can't catch me. I'm the gingerbread man. You can't hurt me. I'm, I've found my safe place. And when can I get out of this drunken stupor to get into the next one? And the challenge for us as biblical counselors is we have someone who their favorite place to go, their, their best friend is this, this safe place where they don't get hurt anymore. They don't get beat, uh, beaten anymore. They don't feel it when they are. <clears throat> and so they're looking to escape. And the challenge for us is to make sure that God is presented as the attractive God that he is. But it's also important for us to make sure they understand that God redeems suffering. At Vision of Hope, we say God never wastes your pain. 
He takes your pain and he redeems it. He uses it for good by his grace as only he can. Now I think about Joseph and his brothers in the Bible. Joseph's brother's sin ended up freeing them and releasing them. When you think about that, Joseph's brothers, had they not sinned, I mean, humanly speaking, of course, it was their sin that eventually led to physical redemption for them. So we have a tall task with that person in the coffee shop. But you know what? We have a big, huge, mighty God. We have his word and his spirit. And we can't do it, but we just need to be faithful. We don't need to punt on first down. We need to uh, try and minister the gospel to hurting people and lead them to Christ because we need them in the church. We need them sacrificing and living in the local church, living in a way that they are being a blessing to our church, but also really a blessing to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true, that it's full of grace, full of truth, 100% of both. Help us to be faithful as we seek to minister to those who are hurting. And Lord, uh, let us not get weary, even though sometimes uh, the hurt appears to be overwhelming. May we be confident in your power and in your strength and your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Copyright 2017, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.